Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time that we'll be able to share together. We thank you for the diversity of our body. We thank you for the way that you are working amongst us. Um, Not always the way that I expect. Not always the way that we think we have it all sorted out, even and even as Kendall's reminded us this morning. Sometimes we just have no idea where you're leading us, but our responsibility is just to follow. So, Lord, as we just share in a little bit of time, thinking through what you've said through your word, Lord, give us ears to hear what you're saying, not what I expect. Lord Spirit, will you give us hearts to receive what you are doing? In your name, amen. We've spent the last couple of weeks together now describing and I think exploring how the gospel itself, the good news of our salvation found in Christ, is not just content or information that we can know, but it is truth that shapes us both as individuals, but more importantly, as a community of God's people. The gospel shapes and forms the community of God's people. And I warned you right at the very beginning that the Bible shouldn't be viewed as primarily being a book addressed to individuals, but that it is God's self-revelation to his people. The good news about Jesus carries implications. It demands a response from us. To simply hear it, ignore it, or even say amen and then walk away, the Bible describes that as foolishness. Our church should not only affirm sound doctrine, but should also express and embody a clear gospel culture, a way of life which is shaped by the good news. This happens as we live as a community of worshippers who live by daily dying. That's what we talked about in the very first week of this series in Romans chapter 12. Secondly, what we looked at last week is that the gospel forms us to be a very distinct community. Our church should be a subversive community that refuses to concede to the mould that this world tries to press us into. And instead, we should be pursuing transformation, not confirmation, from the inside out as we submit to the glory of Jesus in our midst. But here's a question that I think we need to ask ourselves at this point in time. As an individual, does that mean that you have lost all significance to God? That God only really cares about the church as a whole, as his community. Does God care about you as an individual? What place, if any, does individualism have in God's design and purpose for the church in this age? That's the question that I want us to consider this morning. Grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 12. We're going to read verses 3 down to verse 8, and I just want to make a few brief reflections about it this morning. Romans chapter 12, starting from verse 3, 
I'm going to read down to verse 8. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. If you can follow along with whatever you're reading, that would be fantastic. You got it? When you've got it, why don't you stand up if you're able to stand and we will read God's Word together. Romans chapter 12, starting from verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Why don't you take a seat? I want to contrast two types of individuals this morning. The individual that we find in the world and the individual that we should find in the church. So have a look at verse 3 with me and we're just going to read or highlight the first, first little bit of it. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he should think. I think from the short statement that we, we can see that there's this negative sort of side of the coin to a positive command that we're going to get later in the verse. We're going to learn a few things which I think are important to highlight. I'm only going to highlight one of them. Here it is, worldly individualism has an over-realized estimation of its own importance. So there's a type of individualism that you will find in the world which has an over-realized estimation of its own importance. I want you to notice by the wording that you'll see there that the problem isn't that we think highly of ourselves. The problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. That's an important distinction to make. So we spoke about last week, if you were here, the mould that this world wants us to fit. There's a bunch of them. We highlighted a few. There are a lot. One of those moulds, I think, is the rampant rise of an over-realised self-worth. We've so elevated the place of the individual that it has now become the dominant value our society holds. So consider how this looks for a moment. We have an immense pressure in this world to affirm anything and everything, and that is at an all-time high. Not only are we being asked to affirm everything, we run the risk of being blacklisted and publicly shamed if we don't doesn't only happen with sort of the high exposure issues, public issues that we see on the news like sexuality and identity, but this happens at a grassroots level as well. From advertising, so one of the very famous ones from 
you know, it ran for years and years and years, was um, Coke ran an advertising campaign where the most important person in the world is you, all right? You deserve everything. That's why you should go buy this product. Uh, that runs from makeup through to clothing, through to cars. You are the most important person, so treat yourself, right? We see it on our Facebook feeds. Every second meme is about um, the importance of you and how you should cut people out of your life or how you should... It's about you. That's what the world is asking you to believe. Even happens in school athletic carnivals. The highest value is on affirmation. That's why we see in the last 20 years the rise of the participation trophy. We want to affirm everyone. All right? So while on one hand affirmation has become the prized cultural value of our age, it's also become the emperor who had no clothes on because everyone laughs at it. Everyone thinks it's kind of a joke. But what are we going to do? We don't want to be seen as non-affirming. We don't want to get blacklisted, so we just ride along with the age. Our society desperately tries to appear accepting and affirming of every foolish thing that it stumbles over. You see, I think that the truth is that we don't really prize affirmation at all. We truly value being seen to be affirming. Paul, when he wrote this book, Romans, if you were to go back to chapter 1, said these words in verse 22, as he talked about the world. He said, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Birds, four-footed animals, reptiles. Down in Romans 1 and verse 25, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what had been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. You see, our current age has taken a beautiful and a precious gift, our identities, who we are as people, image bearers of the Creator, and we've elevated it to the point of idolatry. Rather than giving ourselves as living sacrifices, we've enthroned ourselves as the object of worship. And in doing so, we claim to be wise sages of our age, but really, we're just displaying our foolishness. We've exchanged truth for a lie, and we have declared it to be good. See, God created an entire universe, didn't he? You can read about it back in Genesis. Spoke everything into existence by the power of his word. He crafted life from the dirt and declared that we, man and woman, with a pinnacle of all that he made. So after saying, of all creation, it is good, he looked at Adam and he looked at Eve and he said, it is very good. But we weren't content with that. We weren't then and we aren't now. The crowning achievement of God's creation isn't good enough. 
We want more. We still do. Paul says not to think more highly than you should think of yourself. So now we have to ask, well, then how should we think of ourselves? If Paul begins this verse, Romans 12 and 3, by saying, listen, there is a way of thinking yourself too highly. And I don't think we need too much explanation of the ways that we can see that, both out there and, if we're honest, in here, right? What does the individual look like according to the gospel? Well, we go back to that verse again, Romans 12 and 3. It continues, instead... So don't think of yourself too highly, more highly than you should think. Instead, think, Christian Standard Bible says, sensibly. Some say soberly. As God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So we might mistakenly assume that the opposite of thinking highly of ourselves is to think lowly of ourselves, to think degradingly of ourselves. And maybe, if you've been around churches for long enough, you've heard Christians speaking, and that's only affirmed that view. Maybe a lot of us have bought into that idea, that the opposite of thinking too highly of ourselves is to think lowly of ourselves, but if we think that, we'd be wrong. Just as the problem lies not in thinking highly, but thinking too highly, there is an equal danger in thinking too low of ourselves. I love what you said, Kendall, this morning. Like, preach, brother. I'm not special. And then he went, hang on. I'm a child of the king, right? But he did qualify it by saying, but so are you, right? I'm not more special than you. I'm just an average old child of the king. which is pretty cool. We have misunderstood humility if we think it means degrade yourselves. We have misunderstood humility if we think it means speak poorly of yourself. To guard against pride. And that's so often how we've thought about it, right? Oh, I don't want to be proud. Oh, I'm no good. Paul isn't asking you to squish your identity into the mud. He's simply asking us to estimate our self-worth by how Jesus identifies us. Not more than that, and certainly not less than that. That's what thinking sensibly means. That's what thinking soberly means. You see, there was a time... Not that long ago, and some of you have known my story, I've struggled with depression over the years, where I thought that I was seeing things clearly all of a sudden. Depression will do that to you. It clouds your view to the point that you think that you are now seeing clearly, more clearly than you have ever seen in your life before. And I I said to myself, I've seen my life for what it truly is. And there was a brief moment where I felt like the veneer of my existence had all fallen away, all stripped away, and I saw all the things that I wasn't. I had a big long list of them. I wrote them down. 
I said, I'm not a man of real integrity. I said, I'm not loving and I'm not kind and I'm definitely not patient. I said, I am not a man of substance. I'm not upright. I'm not blameless. I'm not self-controlled. I'm a shadow of what a husband and a father should be. I'm undisciplined, ill-equipped, untrained. I don't hold any noticeable skill in any area of life. I am not remarkable. I am not significant. And as I tried to comprehend all of those things and make sense of it, I could feel my soul dying a little bit more inside. And in that moment, I heard what I believed to be the voice of God. It wasn't auditory. It didn't come to me on a fleece or a neon sign. (laughs) But this is what it said. I was surprised because I heard God say, let me add a few more things to your list. He said, you're not unknown. He said, you are not a mistake. He said, you are not alone. He said, you are not abandoned. You are not left helpless. You are not a stranger to me. You are not purposeless. You are not unforgiven. And you are not an orphan. Believe me, there are many things that I am not. My list could have gone much longer. And yet, there is one thing that I am, and there is one thing that you are, if you know Christ this morning. You belong to the King of Kings. Amen. The Lord of Lords calls you His child. He stands you in heavenly places with his only beloved son. You are co-heirs with Christ. You're a child of God. And so am I. You are who God says you are. No more than that and no less than that. That's what thinking soberly or sensibly means. It simply means that we commit to agreeing with God so that when God says, this is who you are, you say, amen. You don't feel inclined to have to add to it to make your way in the world. And you don't feel inclined to detract from it, to appear, I don't know, more holy or humble as a Christian. So often our attempts at humility are in fact a type of false pride. I appear to be humble, but at the same time, deep inside, I'm hoping that someone will stand up and contradict me. Oh, I could never do that. Waiting for that little voice for someone to come along and say, oh, no, you could, Chris. (laughs) Oh, can I? That's what's called a a humble brag, all right? I'm terrible at this, hoping that someone will come and pat me on the back and tell me how good I am at it. It's a false humility. It's just pride in different clothes. 
So humility isn't about thinking lowly of ourselves, it's thinking about how Jesus thinks about us. Right? And the fact is that we've got a room full of people here and not one of us are the same. And not one of us is held up as the ideal. Jesus is. We can't look at someone in this room and say, you know what, to be a really great, successful Christian in this church, I need to look like that person. If you ever point at me, man, I'll break your finger. (laughs) Seriously, you have no idea what you're talking about if you say something like that about me. We need to think sensibly, right? Soberly. And we're looking to Jesus and we're saying, for me to look anything like a disciple of of God, I want to look like Jesus, right? But in this room, we're all very different. Paul says that. He says, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. That's how we think about ourselves. It means that in God's wisdom that he has created and shaped each one of his children perfectly but differently. Paul says this about himself. I love it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. No need to pretend. No need to try and elevate myself, puff myself up in any way, or low myself down and try and play that sort of Christian false humility game. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen here this morning, before we talk, now tell him he's already done. But let me tell you, you are who you are. And that's, that's more than okay. When God has shaped a life, when God has held a life, when God has reformed a life, when God has renewed a life, when God has made a new creation, you are who you are and that is okay. Not more. You don't need to be. Not less. Exactly what grace has shaped you to be. And that comes with two things. We're not going to go all through all the the details, but I want to highlight the two things. It comes with a unique gospel identity. Have a look at verse 4 and verse 5 for a moment. Paul says, Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Here's the summary of that. Have a look at your body for a moment. Have a think about it. I bet that you are terrible at writing your signature with your toes. I can guarantee it. Really hard to type on the keyboard with your nose. Like, it seems silly to us, don't we? Oh, yeah, of course, Chris, we get that. Our bodies are all different. Our hands don't have the same function to our feet, our eyes and our mouth and our ears. We could go to Corinthians and find out more expansive, you know, takes on that, but... But we understand that our bodies are shaped to perform different functions in different ways and they actually work together. They're supposed to coordinate with each other. We have a bit of a funny thing in in our house that when someone, it doesn't happen very often, like only maybe 20 to 30 times every meal, that (laughs) someone spills food while they're trying to eat, you know. I don't know who came up with it, but our kids take great joy I, I, I take great joy too in being the first person to go eating skills, you know. 
because you've got to scoop, there's quite a lot of coordination there. You've got to scoop up food out of your bowl or you've got to cut knife, you know, a steak with your knife and fork and you've got to get it to your mouth and you've got to get it in your mouth. You've got to lean over your plate. You've got to chew without it. There's a whole lot of functional things that are going on in your body when you do that. And when we get it wrong, it's humorous. People get food in their beard or they... Well, I'm the only person who does that in my household, but... <laughs> We have many parts, but they're a part of one body, aren't they? And all the parts don't have the same function. And Paul says, in the same way. Listen, it's okay for us to be different here. We have unique gospel identities in this church. But we are a part of one body in Christ. And in fact, we're not lone soldiers. We're not lone wolves out there doing our own thing. It's not like the hand can say to the eye, I don't need you. Paul talks about that in Corinthians. We are individually, says, members of one another. We need each other. For this church to function, it can't all be Marty. All right? I love when Marty gets up to make an announcement or he says highlight or amen or whatever. And I go, oh, that'd be awesome. Imagine if we were all doing that. We would never get anything done. <laughs> all right? Man, I love you, brother. All right? Amen. <laughs> we're not all meant to be the same. And we don't have to pretend. We don't have to compete. We don't have to say, that's my goal. I'm going to... None of that. Not only are we all different in our character, right? we, we won't thrive. We won't thrive. We sang that song earlier. We are meant to thrive, like that tree in Psalm 1, right? Planted beside water, it's, who bears its fruit and its leaves stay green no matter what the season of life, whether it's rain or drought. We're meant to thrive as we're rooted in Christ, but you will not thrive as an island, living in isolation from each other. You don't need to prove your strength as a Christian by going alone, right? It's like the men when they get together at a working bee and there's something to be lifted and someone says, oh, I'll come and help you. I can do it, you know? We don't have to compete with each other. It's okay to say, I need help. In fact, I would say that that's a mark of true Christian strength. I need help. It's certainly okay to receive help when it's offered. It's not healthy either to have a type of gospel codependency where we have unhealthy attachments with each other and begin to define our identity, not by who Jesus says we are, but the worth that I feel from my relationships with other Christians. These people make me feel good, so I must be doing well. These people make me feel wanted, so I must be wanted. Oh, these people make me feel something. These are the relationships where I begin to believe that other people exist for my benefit. That everybody around me owes me something. We can't hold each other to ransom by placing unrealistic expectations on other people. Guess what? No one else here is Jesus. You can't be Jesus to somebody else and 
and they can't be Jesus to you. There is only the one Jesus that, that we need. We are designed for gospel interdependence. Where we define ourselves by who Jesus says we are, but realize that to truly flourish, I need you. And wonder of wonders, grace upon grace, you need me. None of us are enough on our own, but with God providing the life, the rest of the body makes up for our individual lack. And we have a unique gospel service to provide. Verses 6 to the end of verse 8. Paul says, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. And then he describes them. We've read it already. Here's the great mystery. The longer that you are a Christian, the more you should look like Jesus. That's true of all of us. We should all be changing to look more and more like Jesus. But at no point are we meant to look more and more like each other. We are never meant to be a a community of Christian clones. If if we've ever given you the impression that you should look or act or sound or sing a certain way to fit in here at Raymond Terrace Community Church, then I'm sorry. And if that's true, then we've failed in our gospel culture and we should confess and we should repent Because our desire is to see individuals brought into community through the gospel, not to conform to some type of cookie-cutter approach to Christian growth, but to grow into all that God has shaped you to be and desires you to be using the gifts that he's placed into your life and the character that he's forming in your life also. His grace to you is unique. The only similarity that we should share is that there is a common expectation to use whatever God has placed into your hands. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. And then he just simply says, if you've got one, guess what? You do. Here he says, if you've got a gift, use it, right? If it's what? Prophecy? Then use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If it's service, it's serving. It's not rocket science. You really don't need a preacher to tell you what this means. It just means if you've got something to do, do it. And then he's saying, you do have something to do. (laughs) So you should be doing it. Right? Let's finish. When you look in a mirror, how do you see yourself? And maybe there's some physical things you don't like about yourself. All of us probably have that to some degree. But I'm not talking about the, the image that looks back at you, you in the mirror. I'm thinking about what you really think about yourself. Two ways that you could be doing that. Some of us might be thinking too highly of ourselves. Paul says, hey, don't think too highly of yourself. But some of us might be struggling with that, right? We've bought into the lie that the emperor has a beautiful outfit that deserves to be paraded around town. We've conformed to the mould that the world places us into. We've bought into the lie. 
We're worshipping the created, not the creator. We need the gospel to descale our eyes. Do you remember when Saul was travelling to, um, not Tarsus? Damascus. Damascus. Paul's travelling to Damascus. Jesus confronts him on the way, falls off his donkey, horse, whatever he was riding, blind. Jesus says, so why, why are you persecuting me? Saul had to come to terms with viewing himself the way Jesus saw him. Right? Saul, Saul saw himself as the, the rescuer of the faith, the zealous one, the holy one. Jesus saw him and said, you're a persecutor. His eyes were blinded. He spent three days in darkness, sitting in a house that he didn't know where he was until a dear Christian brother, Ananias, came and rested his hand on his shoulder and said to him what I think are the most profound words that could have ever been heard. Brother Saul. He had to see himself the way God saw him. Guess what happened? The scales fell from his eyes. He could see again, but this time he saw the world very differently. We need that as well. Or, maybe we think too lowly of ourselves, trying desperately to feed our pride with a type of false humility. We degrade ourselves while thinking that we're really being holy. It's a fool's game. I want you to hear this morning, you are not unknown to God in Christ. You are not a mistake. You are not alone. You are not abandoned. You are not left hopeless. You are not a stranger to God. You are not purposeless. You are not unforgiven. You are not an orphan. You are a child of the King. This morning, you are who Jesus says you are. So let's live in the diverse gospel community that God has given us. Right, as we celebrate, joyfully celebrate our unique gospel identities, as we serve each other joyfully with unique gospel gifts, that's what the gospel does. It creates a wonderfully diverse community of God's people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time that we've shared together. Thank you for the various voices that we've heard, for the stories that we've heard of people's lives who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've heard of people who have sought for purpose and meaning in all the darkest places of this earth, and finally they found it in you. We've heard from people who said, I don't know what I'm doing, but God keeps leading me, so I want to follow. We've remembered you through the table through singing, through your word. Lord, you meet all of us right where we are. You feed us the bread we need. You've shaped us all to be different. And yet you've called all of us to look more and more like Jesus. Help us to do that this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.